Good morning. Good morning. Alrighty, so let's go ahead and start class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this opportunity to come and study. We ask that your spirit will join us, that our hearts and minds would be brought together in a unity of love and truth, that as we have our conversation today, it will all be to glorify you, that you might come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. And we are doing lesson number six in our quarterly, uh, the Gospel in Galatians, and the title is The Priority of the Promise. And the first question that popped in my mind as I read the lesson was, what do you think of God's promises? Well, for one thing, a lot of them are conditional. Well, how about if you just tell me some of the promises God has promised? Just throw some promises out that you know of. He's coming again. He's coming again. Okay, any others? I will be with you always. I will be with you always to the end of the age. What else? That he's going to take us back to his home during the thousand years. That he's going to come and take us from this world of sin back to his home. Others? That he won't destroy the world with the flood? I was kind of, my mind kind of works chronologically. I started going like Genesis. Let's see if we can start <laughs> going through. So I said, okay, there. well, we got the first promise was a savior. Yes. Right, right there in Genesis 3, we got a promise of a savior. Yeah. Uh, and that promise, did he keep it? Yes. Yeah. And we got a promise that never going to destroy the world again with the flood. Yes. Yes. And, uh, and then uh, other promises. Does God promise that he's faithful, that he never changes? Yeah, now think about the implications of that promise. That's a huge promise. I'm the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Never changes. Especially when you start thinking of all the types of theories on atonement and, and plan of salvation and all. God never changes. So what does that mean? When man sinned, who changed? We did. We did. And if he never changes and we changed, then the only way for things to be fixed is for us to be changed back. Yes. Does that mean that the old covenant is the same as the new covenant? Well, it depends on what you mean by old covenant. If you mean the covenant that was given to Abraham, that is the covenant of grace. If you mean the covenant that the children of Israel enacted when they claimed that they could handle it themselves at Sinai, yes, we will do it, which is technically the old covenant, the covenant that here's what you, what you want, we ourselves will do it by a sense of works. That old covenant is not the same. So it depends on how you define old covenant. Yes. Now, the old covenant, God has got to love. So when we suggested that we could do it ourselves, he says, okay, I'll let you try to do it yourself. And obviously it didn't. Right, exactly. So um, that's why I say it depends on how you define it. So if old covenant means the one given to Abraham, then they're the same. If it means the what children of Israel to Sinai, they're not the same. Then how about that he promised to save everyone who trusts him? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, who, well, wait a minute, uh, that's only Jews, right? No, whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. There's a promise there, isn't there? Yeah. Will he keep that promise? Yes. Did he promise to come again and put an end to sin? Yes. Yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of, now, now, there are some promises he's already fulfilled. Some promises are yet future, like coming again and putting an end to sin. That hasn't happened yet. But, as we see the promises already fulfilled, does it give us confidence in the promises yet to come? Yes. Yeah. You have to um, give me your definition of sin, though. I mean, sin can mean different things to different people. Class, what's, what's the definition of sin? Lawlessness. Lawlessness, meaning? Coming short of the ideal of God. Living outside of God's design for life, yeah. Okay, the Greek word, I think you brought this up in one of your classes a long time ago, that the Greek word for sin and sins is the same word. So sin actually causes sins. Sin in the first place was mistrusting God. 
Lucifer mistrusted God. He got the angels to mistrust God. He got Eve to mistrust God. And sin causes the sins, the breaking of the Ten Commandments, because if you don't trust God, you only have yourself to trust. That causes selfishness, survival of the fittest. So then you have to do all the, you have to do all these things. If you have, don't have God to trust, you might have to lie, cheat, steal, even murder to get your way. So sin is an issue of first what's going on in the heart, followed by the behaviors we carry out, which is not no longer having the law of love in the heart, but having instead selfishness in the heart. That's right. Sin is lawlessness. Alrighty. Um, Sabbath lesson. It's uh, the memory verse, Galatians three eighteen. Somebody read that for us. For if inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So when you hear this memory verse, Galatians 3.18, that our inheritance comes, if inheritance came by the law, then it no longer came by the promise, but instead, the inheritance comes by a promise. What does, it, what does it mean? We've heard the word, now the question is, what does the word mean? There's significant meaning to this passage. We don't fulfill the promise by law-keeping. Ah, so the promise is not a legal promise. It's a, not a law-keeping promise. I think, think the implications through, and we think about how God has described, uh, how, how some theologians describe the, the, the inheritance that we receive. Um, I included a link in our notes this week to an article that uh, somebody forwarded me, and the article was called, Did Jesus Die for Our Sins? And the article, and the, the link, so you all can read it. It's in the notes, so you can take the link, put it into your web browser, and you can go read the article. It was not written by an Advent, it was written by an evangelical. And it, and it documents that the whole theory of penal substitution theology didn't really emerge into Christianity until the 12th century. So the first, you know, multiple centuries after Christ, they never taught a legal idea or a penal idea of salvation. And then I wanted, and I also included some quotes from the early church fathers, Justin and Arrhenius, which is the first, second century after Christ, that, uh, believe it or not, they taught what we teach, a healing substitution model. Let me give you a couple of examples here. According to the Apology and Dialogue of Justin, Christ accomplishes the conversion and restoration of humanity to, <clears throat> to its destination by his teaching as to the worship of the true God and virtuous life and faith in the eternal reward of immortality which is to be bestowed at the second coming. Nevertheless, we find also in Justin ideas that resemble the doctrine of Ignatius as to the divine economy in the incarnation whose purpose was to overthrow death and Satan. Now, that's kind of a funny way to speak, okay? But, but if you actually understand what he's saying, he, Justin taught three things that Christ came to do. To overthrow death, to destroy Satan, and to restore humanity back to God's original design. That's what Justin taught. Now, Irenaeus, he says... Christ, having been made flesh, submitted to be born of a virgin, in order that through the dispensation, this dispensation, the, the serpent, who at the first had done evil and the angels assimilated to him, might be put down and death might be despised. So here we already see, so one mission of Christ, put down the serpent and his angels and despise death or destroy death. In fact, we find in Justin clear indications of the, of the presence to his mind of the recapitulation theory. Afterwards, more fully developed by Arrhenius, according to which Christ became a new head of humanity, undoes the sin of Adam by reversing the acts and circumstances of his disobedient, and finally communicates to men immortal life. <laughs> so, 
sounds a lot like scripture. Oh, exactly. This is the point I'm, I'm trying to make. Um, the, the early church fathers knew nothing of this whole penal substitution, payment, legal stuff. It all became after the, after the, the imperial Rome took over Christianity, and Christianity started accepting human governmental concepts with an imperial dictator who imposes law and imposes penalties. And then the whole idea of salvation came, well, the, we have to do something to the imperial authority to get the imperial authority to uh, pass pardon upon us. That was never part of Christianity. It was never part of the gospel message. The gospel message was mankind got changed and deceived into sin. Mankind is no longer in harmony with the way God designed life to operate. Christ came to destroy sin, to destroy Satan, and to restore mankind back to God's design. And that's what the, that's what the early church taught. That's what we teach. Yes. That's what they say. Rome hijacked the church. That's right. And then they wrote the Bible in Latin for a thousand years, which is a legal language. So all the words are legal. So when you interpret the Bible in the 1400s, you have all these legal words. So what are you to think? He said that, you know, exactly what we were just saying, Rome... Uh, uh, hijacked the church, and then they translated the Bible uh, into a Latin language, and Latin is the basis for our for our English uh, legal system. And so everybody naturally, um, you know, reads these Latin words with a legal overtone to it now, because the Latin is the basis for our legal system. Yes. I guess I never thought through completely why God didn't want us to have kings, but I think I see better now why, because it does set up that legal ramification of, of thinking. And as we said a couple of weeks back, when you read Daniel 7 about the little horn changing, seeking to change times and laws, um, my suggestion to the class was that our traditional interpretation is really the misdirection or the diversion. A great strategist, a military strategist, or a con man will always have a diversion to divert you away from their true aim. And the diversion of the little horn power was changing number two and number four of the commandments. Very proudly so claiming it and and everybody then argues yes or no the real change in the law that everyone has accepted without even noticing is god's law is an imposed law rather than god's law is the law he built the universe to run upon the law of love which is the scripture said and so all christianity now reacts to this accepted imposed law idea with this whole legal gospel idea uh, and that's how the little horn power has completely diverted christianity away from the true gospel message to a legal system and here's another one from Irenaeus. We come here to the famous Irenaeus doctrine of recapitulation, the concept that of Christ as the second Adam, or second head of humanity, who not only undoes the consequences of Adam's fall, but also takes up the development of humanity broken off in him and carries it to its completion, to union with God and consequently immortality. That's Irenaeus in, in 100 AD. Okay, that, That's what we teach in this class. It was uh, God recapitulating the ancient creation of man in himself that he might slay sin and annul death and give life to man. Is that kind of just exciting to find out? I, I didn't know all this, by the way, until probably four or five months ago I discovered these ancient documents. And, uh, but the Bible teaches that. And our, my understanding of our church the reason the Advent movement was called along, because there's a Reformation. The, 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 the Roman system infected the, the church with this distortion of God's law, this distortion of God's character, became a penal legal model, very much like imperial Rome. And then the Reformation came, and, and we started to reform, to bring the world back to the true knowledge of God, to prepare for his coming. And, and we were 
supposed to finish that work by eliminating this idea from Christian thought and showing the true nature of God's character, kingdom, and government. The final message of mercy to lighten the world for Christ's return is the truth about God's character of love. And that's what we're to be taking to the world. All right, Sunday's lesson, first paragraph. It says, even if his opponents conceded that Abraham's life was characterized primarily by faith, Paul knew that they would have questions about why God gave the law to Israel about four centuries after Abraham. Did not the giving of the law nullify any previous agreement? And that's, of course, the question from the quarterly. Thoughts about that? And, the, and we're discussing then the, the question, why then the law? In Galatians, why then the law? Why was the law given? Why did he give it 400 years after the promise? Forgotten it. Was Abraham given the law? No, he didn't need it. Mm-hmm. What do we mean by given the law? Do we mean codified, written down? The Ten Commandments primarily, and then secondarily the, the ordinances that followed. That was what was given at Sinai, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Primarily the commandments, and then secondarily all the ordinances and ceremonies that followed. Yes. One point about the law. Most people say, I obey this because I love God, and God wants me to do this. That's not the idea. The idea is that, that those are the laws that let an eternal universe exist. And he wants you to grow up and understand that you don't do it out of love for me. You do it because it makes sense. Yeah, and I, I think our class would agree with that wholeheartedly, that we obey because we agree and it makes sense, and that's how the things are designed to work. Yeah, Russell. The law was given because it was necessary at that time. The Mosaic Law was necessary because they didn't, Obey the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were necessary because they didn't obey the the coordinate the the, the um, ordinances covenant that yeah. circumcision represented. The circumcision was necessary because they'd forgotten the promise given to Abraham. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, and so here we read in First Timothy one eight through eleven. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. This is a huge thing <clears throat> because I'm going to tell you Christianity does not use the law properly. Uh, if one uses it properly. We know that the law is made not for righteous, for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for adulterers and perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. And that's, that's um, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, and then Romans 5, 20. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increases, grace increases all the more. Those two together tell us the purpose of the law. If it's used properly, what's its proper purpose and use? Yes? We're looking at a half-truth. And I think as we look at that half-truth, we fall into the category of that penal system. Uh, if we look at the law as a, as a correction and as a reproof, we're believing a half-truth. Okay, what's the half-truth? The half-truth is that the law is for reproof, for correction, for a mirror to tell me when I've done something wrong. It's for that last part that you read there in Timothy, that the law isn't for us, but it's for these people. So I'd like to suggest that if we look at... Um, so what's the whole truth? The whole truth is Second Timothy 3.16. Read that for us. All Scripture... And that includes the laws, is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, 
for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works is the next verse. Sure. So when I took driver's training, the material that was presented to us or that I read was based on the law. Now, when the highway patrolman stops me on the road, I didn't know the law. Now, I didn't read the book. Why, why, why should I? So I have to learn there when he stops me by reproof and correction. But I could have learned it ahead of time, the instruction. Uh, how does it say it? The instruction in righteousness. I could have learned it ahead of time and used the law as a teacher so that I didn't have to... So I, I'm trying to see what the half-truth is. I, still, I, I see... What's, what's the whole truth that we're missing? The four parts in that, that I read. The for doctrine, for reproof, for correction. The half-truth is the reproof and correction. If that's all we look at the law for, we're, we're believing a lie. Well, let's see if that's true or not. I'm going to test you here. Because... Um, First off, we have to clarify, are you speaking of the written law, or are you speaking of the eternal law that life was built upon? When you say that's a half-truth, we're, we're talking about the written law put on stone. We're not talking about the law of love that emanates from the character of God that life is built to operate upon. I, I think we're... Well, are they the same? They're the same. Really? Sure. Everybody believe they're the same? No. Well, we say, we, we say the Jews kept the law. Now, let's see if they're the same. They didn't keep them. Let's see if they're, in fact, the same. Let's test it, because it's the theory. Um, Lucifer and a third of the angels broke the law. Yes or no? Yes. Did they fail to keep the Sabbath? No. Did they uh, have adultery? No. Sabbath Yeah, did the Sabbath even exist yet? No. no, it didn't exist yet. Sabbath didn't exist to creation of this world. I mean, the Sabbath is measured by the rotation of this earth on its axis in relation to a sun that was not in existence yet when Lucifer sinned. So the Sabbath wasn't around yet. Um, what about um, sins passing down from one generation to another amongst the angels to the third and fourth generation of them? Does that happen amongst the angels? Hmm. So this law was not always in existence that we call the Ten Commandments. We have multiple. Uh, honor their mother and father. Do the angels need a law to honor their mother and father? No. So the law of the Ten Commandments was not always in existence. It was a special distillation written for a need that this planet had that the angels didn't need. Yes? I think what we're talking about, yes, it was spelled out for the sinful man mm -hmm. to understand, but those were principles of God's government. I mean, all those things were just an example of God's Character. Yes, so the question that Paul's asking, of course, in Galatians is, why was the law added? Was the law that is the principle of God's character ever added? No. So when we talk about Galatians, why was the law added? It is not talking about the law that is the principles upon which the universe is created. It's talking about the special distillation for this planet, the Ten Commandments written in stone which is not the same thing as the principles themselves. It is a codified expression of the principles used to help for the purpose what Paul said, this law is not for the righteous. It is for the wicked. 
This law is not for the healthy, it is for the unhealthy. This law is a diagnostic instrument like an MRI. And the MRI is not needed for the healthy person, the MRI is needed for the unhealthy person. Why? Because the healthy person, as the New Covenant says, has the law written on the heart and mind. Their character is in harmony with God's, and they don't need the written law to diagnose anymore the wickedness within. Yes? But isn't that possibly how we know we have how it comes into our heart is because of course. we studied it. Of course, because we were all wicked at one point, and the law and the law brought us to conviction, led us to Christ, diagnosed us uh, as a schoolmaster, took us to the physician, the great physician for healing and restoration. And once it's done its mission, once it's done its purpose, it is no longer needed for that purpose or mission anymore. Does that make it invalid? No, it's still valid, but it no longer has a purpose in the life of the righteous man because the righteous man has the law written and reproduced in the heart. And so the question, again, what we were asking is, um, what was the purpose of the written law? That was the question, the written law, not the principles of the eternal law against God's character. And the written law was given because of the need of humanity, because they had forgotten because they didn't recognize their own wickedness, because they didn't know their need. So the written law was given as a diagnostic tool to show that humans were out of harmony with God's law. The written law of the Ten Commandments of Sinai was not written for angels. It was written for humans. Okay? And so, and so um, I'm not sure that this is a half-truth when we put this down as a diagnostic, but I think you're pr- uh, pointing out the, the reality that the written law is based upon a broader law of God's character of love that all life is built upon, and the reason we won't need the diagnostic tool anymore is because we've had the Spirit reproduce it and write it in the heart of the, as the New Covenant goes. And as it's written in the heart of the New Covenant, and we are made new in righteousness, we can still go back and study the written law and be edified by it, we can grow by it, we can gain wisdom by it, uh, and, and mature by it, but yet it's not in that purpose serving the purpose of diagnosing and exposing the sin in the man anymore. That's a good point. Yes. The problem that I see with, the, uh, with this idea is that um, there's a lot of people who believe they're righteous, and they're righteous men, and yet they are looking at themselves, they judge themselves about that way. But if they went back to the law and take a look, they might see that there was something there they needed to to correct or change. Yeah, I love that because, uh, you know, if you had a tumor in your lung and you went to the MRI machine, the MRI showed the tumor in the lung, and then you went to the doctor and the doctor had a remedy, cured the tumor in your lung, you ha- most of us would actually want to go back in the MRI again, wouldn't we? After the treatment, wouldn't we? Let's go back in the MRI. Why? Well, did you get it all? Is there anything left? Okay. So yes, uh, after we've gone to Christ and baptized, given our heart to Him, there's, we, we should go back to the law. Let's, let, let it examine us again and see. Okay. There's nothing wrong with that at all. I think that's a great idea. Yeah. He brought, he brought up the thing, a righteous man. I don't think we know what righteous means in the Bible because Peter said that Lot was righteous. Lot was going to throw his two virgin daughters out to a sex crazed mob and then had his own grandchildren by these two girls. So righteous, does not mean doing the Ten Commandments where righteous meant simply putting your trust in God. That's it. End of Yeah, what do y'all think about that? Well, in fact, let's think about that while we move to Monday's lesson. 
Because Monday's lesson is going to talk about that very thing. And he's saying uh, righteous is not primarily about the behavior. Look at Lot, who was called righteous, but he wanted to throw his daughters out to the wild men. Um, but the righteous means one who trusts in God. Well, Monday's lesson, uh, first paragraph, it says, um, Paul has argued strongly for the supremacy of faith in a person's relationship with God. He has repeatedly stated that neither circumcision nor any other works of the law are prerequisite to salvation, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Moreover, it is not the works of the law, but faith, that is the defining mark of the believer. uh, This repeated negation of the works of the law raises the question, does the law have absolutely no value then that God do away with the law? I want to ask the first question, what does it mean to be justified? What does it mean to be justified? Because that's what it says here. By no works of law will be justified. What does it mean to be justified? Set right. Which line set right? Put right, set right with God. You see, but that, but as was said earlier, justified is a Latin-based word that has a lot of legal connotations to it. So a lot of people hear the word justified and they think legal uh, setting right. Is that what that means? In Acts 13, 39 through 40, I read the following. Through him, um, that means Christ, Everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. This is out of Acts. Take care that what the prophets have said does not happen to you. So, through those who believe, they're justified from everything that they could not be justified by works of the law. The SDA Bible commentary on this passage in Acts says this. The verb translated is justified is not found elsewhere in Acts. In Paul's teaching... This is, in fact, the first recorded instance of the doctrine of justification, which became so characteristic of his theology. See Romans 3. In the context of forgiveness of sins, the word justified means acquitted, declared not guilty. Is that what it means? You see how they have put a legal, acquitted, declared not guilty. That sounds like a courtroom, doesn't it? A very legal process going on. Justification, you think of being outward behavior, whereas if you say put right with God, there, there's a change within. I think there's some truth in that. Does it mean to justify? Is justify a legal declaration of innocence? God declares you innocent and not guilty. Is that justification? No. Okay, first off, let's, let's, let's just go down. What are the problems with that idea? If you believe that is justification, what are the problems with that idea? Okay, so number one, she says it makes God a liar. How does, how does this idea that justification is God declaring a person righteous make God a liar? If, if I go to court, okay, just go with this whole legal thing. I go to court and the judge looks at me, he looks at all of the evidence of all the things that I have done, which are clearly, you know, written down, it's obvious, I'm guilty. And he says, ah, you're innocent. Uh, really? <laughs> Did you hear that? So if, if, if we go to actual, if we take this legal model and you go to a real courtroom where you have been, you actually have conducted illegal activities and all the evidence shows that you've actually conducted illegal activities and the judge then declares you innocent in, in spite of the evidence, then the judge is lying. You're not innocent, you're guilty. Okay? And so if we have this idea that God in heaven declares people innocent when they've actually, they're not innocent, that, that's a fraud. And, and, I, and I've said this before, my, what I say God declares to sinners that are saved is not that they're innocent, that they're healed. They, he, he restores them, he regenerates them, he recreates them, he rebuilds them. He puts a new heart and right spirit within them. He transforms them. That's what the, the gospel message is, 
He doesn't declare them innocent. It's, hey, you are sick, but good news, I can heal you. So he declares us healed. Yes, I saw a hand somewhere in the back. Oh, Martin, there you go. To let somebody else die instead of the criminal would be illegal also in our yes. justice system. Yeah, in our justice system. That would be accepted. In our justice system, if somebody was on death row, you couldn't say, hey, uh, I'll give my life and, and kill me instead of them. That wouldn't be legal. But we say that's legal in God's justice system. Yeah. Um, it, 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 number one, it results in a misdiagnosis. This idea that we're talking about right now, that, that justification is declaring um, someone righteous, is based on a misdiagnosis of the problem. The problem is a legal problem. We have to have a legal solution. So, number one, it, 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 if you accept that as a solution, it implies or, or breathes into your thinking a complete misunderstanding of the whole problem. That's the problem. It minimizes the awfulness and evilness of sin because it actually fails to help you appreciate how destructive sin is in the sinner. It simply becomes a legal problem in record books somewhere, and if we can get the record books cleansed or stamped or forgiven or annulled, then we don't have a problem going on. But sin is destructive. It warps the character, sears the conscience, um, which cha- takes us out of harmony with God himself. Sin itself is destructive, and it, it minimizes that. It makes the sin problem a uh, problem with the law or the lawgiver. And uh, I can tell you in meetings that I've had with some, some, some let's just say, well-reputed theologians in our community, um, I was told that uh, a, a price had to be paid. And I said, to who? To God? And they said, no, to the law. Huh. I said, where'd the law come from? What's it based on? Where's it originate? Well, in God's character. So you see, that's really semantics then, isn't it? So in this idea, then we're doing something to God. But God never changes. We can't change and fix mankind by doing something to God. The law never changes. We can't change or fix mankind by doing something to the law. We have to do something to man. And then it makes God out to be a distorter of reality or a liar. So a lot of problems. It gives false security as well. So why do people then claim this? Why do people like this doctrine of legal stuff if it has all these problems? Because it gives false security. You can claim legal pardon without the required personal heart transformation and, and repudiation of selfishness in the heart. And in other words, people can claim this type of righteousness while they are still unrighteous in heart, just as the doctrine itself claims. God declares us righteous while we're not. So we can claim that we're righteous while we continue to live in sin. That's what this doctrine does. And it's false security, false gospel. And this is the premier doctrine taught in our church. If a person has cancer and they're not healed, but the doctor declares them healed, they're still going to die. <laughs> See, practical wisdom. If a person has cancer, and it's misspread, and they're not well, and not healed, but the doctor declares them healed, and even writes in the record healed, they're still going to die of cancer. That's a great practical wisdom. So what is Bible justification? Well, first, when you ha- use your word processor on your com- computer, and you justify your margins, what do you do to the margins when you justify them? You, you put them all in line, right? Everything that was kind of ragged, out of harmony, out of order, is brought in order, is brought in line. It's, everything lines up appropriately when you justify your margins. Well, in this, in this world of sin, in the sin problem, what's out of order, out of harmony, out of line that needs to be put in line? God and his law or the character of mankind? Right. So justification is actually taking mankind, which is out of harmony with God's law, and putting mankind back in harmony. That's what, or setting men right. Exactly right. So, 
Um, yes, you had a comment? The setting right is Adam feared God in the Garden of Eden, and to be set right, Christ had to show on the cross there's nothing to fear. Yeah. So, so then we read in Revelation chapter uh, 22, verse 11, we read, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He who is holy, let him be holy still. The Greek word for righteous in this text in Revelation is the exact same Greek for justify. For justify. Let him who is righteous be righteous. Let him who is justified. And thus we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might be declared righteous in God. Is that what it says? No, so that him we might become the righteousness of God. Does becoming something mean something different to you than being declared something? Yeah, it's hugely different. Hugely, hugely different. We become the righteousness of God through Christ. We're not simply declared it. And thus Ellen White gets it exactly right, and she always does. And here we read in Zarev Ages 762, the law requires righteousness, a righteous life, a perfect character. This man has not to give. He cannot meet the claims of God's holy law. What, what does God's holy law claim? Righteousness. Why does it claim righteousness? There's a reason why. Because life is built on it, and life can't exist out of harmony. It's like the law of health um, the law of health requires breathing. That's what it, a, a, a life that, that has respiration. The law of health requires it. But we're sick and we can't do that. You know, that's what it's saying. The law of God requires righteousness, a righteous life. We don't have to give it. But Christ coming to earth as man lived a holy life and developed a perfect character. Do you know this is what Irenaeus was teaching? Earlier, this is recapitulation. He took upon him man's character, man's condition, and restored it to God's ideal in himself. That's what he did. So he developed a perfect character. These he offers as a free gift to all who will accept them. His life stands for the life of man. Stands. He was the second Adam. So now mankind is no longer represented in a rebellious, fallen state of Adam. Mankind now stands restored perfectly in Christ. Thus, they have remissions of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. Notice why we get remissions of sins that are passed. Through a blood appeasement and a legal penalty. No, through the forbearance of God. God forbears. Uh, what is more, more than this? Christ imbues men with attributes of God. He builds up the human character after similitude of the divine character, a goodly fabric of spiritual strength and beauty. Thus, the very righteousness of the law is fulfilled in the believer in Christ, he can be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. Notice how she describes justification. It's by recreating and reproducing righteousness in the believer. How does he do that? By first becoming one of us and restoring perfectly in a human being the righteousness of God by developing a righteous character. Yes? How do you have the restoring having? How do you have the restoring having? It restored in Christ. Christ is the one who restored it in himself as a human being, and then he offers as a free gift to all who accept it, and the Holy Spirit comes and takes all that Christ achieved and reproduces it in us. What I'm asking is, how did you say he restored it? How did he restore righteousness? By, do, by living perfectly, exercising his human brain, and by choosing to say no to the temptations that he was tempted with to act in self-interest, he destroyed those those impulses that we struggle with to act in self-interest and lived out perfectly via the exercise of a human neural network um, the law of love and restored it perfectly in his being. Okay, the Romans, I don't remember exactly where it was Romans, but he made uh, one man out of two men on the cross when he said, why have you forsaken me? That was the human nature talking. 
but his, his spiritual nature says, dummy, he's right here, and he laid down his life. So he, he put the two natures together and made one nature out of it. He took the human nature and the spiritual nature and made one nature. No longer have to fear God. He laid down his life knowing that he would be raised up again. Yes, he took the human nature and blended it with his divine nature, and in so doing, he eliminated from the human nature the internal drive of survival of the fittest that we all struggle with. He cleansed humanity by uh, merging it with his divinity. So uh, that's exactly what we teach in here. But he did it not through the exercise of his innate divine powers. He did it through the exercise of his human brain. Because it says God cannot be tempted by evil. Um, but uh, in James chapter 1, but he was tempted in every way just like we are yet without sin. So it was his humanity that was overcoming through um, his trust and faith in God. Yeah. Um, and then it says in Zarvage 765, notice this. It says, so the soul dead in trespass and sins receives life through connection with Christ. By faith in him as a personal savior, the union is formed. The sinner unites his weakness to Christ's strength, his emptiness to Christ's fullness, his frailty to Christ's enduring might. Then he has the mind of Christ. The humanity of Christ has touched our humanity, and our humanity has touched divinity. Thus, through the agency of the Holy Spirit, man becomes partaker of the divine nature. He is accepted in the beloved. Notice when we're accepted in the beloved. When are we accepted in the beloved? When we have the mind of Christ, and by the working of the Holy Spirit, we become partaker of the divine nature. It's a transforming, regenerating, renewal. We get a new heart and right spirit. It is, not a, it is not a claim. It's not fiction. It's real. We get new motives, new attitudes in the heart. This transformation that takes place is, though, the work of a lifetime, right? No. Abraham believed God, and he was recognized or understood to be righteous. Because what happened was our natural heart, this is what Romans teach, our natural heart is in what state toward God? What attitude does our unconverted heart have towards God? Enmity. Enmity. Antagonism towards God. Abraham trusted God. What was his now heart attitude towards God? Right. It was no longer at enmity with God. And so at the moment the heart changes from a heart that is against God to a heart that actually has genuine, true trust in God, that heart has been transformed. That heart is now righteous. The rest of the process that you're talking about is just the cleanup work. That's just the cleanup work. But the heart has now been changed to a a rebellious enemy heart, to a heart that's on God's side, where God now has free access to the heart. God can do the rest of the cleanup work with our our continued walk with him. But when the character of Christ is perfectly reproduced, Mm -hmm. that is a work of lifetime. Is it not? You know, because you're talking on an individual level, or is that statement talking on a corporate level? When the character of God is perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to, re- to experience them himself. So is that talking about individuals working for a lifetime so we get righteousness by, um, by uh, aging? The older we get, the more righteous we get. No, I think that ta- text, uh, that text is talking about when the per- righteousness of God is per- reproduced in his people is the spreading of the gospel righteousness to the people of God so they experience the true conversion of heart uh, so the, 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 the body of Christ is converted, not the individual. And I think the body of Christ is yet, un, is yet to a great degree, unconverted. The point I'm attempting to make is this, that um, we grow in our Christian experience over a period of a lifetime uh, 
being righteous with God is one thing, but being completely transformed is something that we all struggle with on a daily basis. I, I, I love what you say about being right, being, uh, that, uh, that we grow through a lifetime. I love that. Uh, and, when, uh, and, and we look at, let's say, Enoch. When does his lifetime end? Is he still growing? Is he still developing? So we will grow and develop through a lifetime for all eternity future. It doesn't stop. But something changed for those who were righteous and versus those who are unrighteous, and that was their heart connection attitude to God. God has access freely in the hearts of those who trust him to heal and cleanse, where he doesn't have access because he stands at the door knocking at the hearts of those people who haven't trusted him. They're not righteous. But is that the end of it? No, it's, a, it's an eternal, like I said, Enoch in heaven, Moses in heaven, even after Christ comes, it's not the end of it. It's an eternal development, an eternal growth, an eternal transformation. We continue to, uh, to develop and, and expand for all eternity future, don't we? Isn't that what I'm saying? Yes, but I hear you saying the traditional way that these comments are made are, are suggestive of we can never actually have confidence that we are in a righteous state with God now because it has something have to do, we have to work on forever. No. And I'm making a distinction between a righteous character and personal development. They're not the same thing. No, and I'm not making them the same thing. I'm saying that, you know, but there is growth that continues. If we get the idea that we get to this plateau and we're there and that's the end of it, then we let down our guard and now things, things fall apart. No, I appreciate that very much. Ellen White says, from the cross until the crown, there's a daily battle with self to do. So from the moment that we're converted and we're now righteous with God until the moment we're glorified and we no longer have internal carnal temptations that tempt us, there's a daily battle with self to do because we have those temptations that that tempt us to act in self-interest. But the difference between the righteous man and the unrighteous man is that the the righteous man is like Romans chapter 7 when, when old neural when old uh, conditioned responses, habit patterns uh, in- reflexively come up and we, and we do something before we even think about it and we realize that's part of the old way of life and we don't like that way of life anymore, we're grieved in our heart. We're sickened in our heart. We fall on our knees, Lord, oh, who will save me from this wretched man that I am? Whereas the unconverted man, well, I had every right to do that. I, I, and they justify themselves. They deny it. So it's not that the, the righteous people no longer make mistakes. It's that the righteous people in their heart never want to make mistakes. And when they do, they're grieved in their heart. They regret it. They fall down in repentant attitude saying, please, you got a lot of work to me and do in me still. I've got a lot of, a lot of transformation still to experience. Uh, but I don't want to be this way. That's a righteous man. I'm very glad to hear it. Okay? <laughs> but the unrighteous man is the one who, when they make mistakes, they justify, excuse, externalize, blame others, make excuses. It wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. That was her fault. She wouldn't rant. So, yeah. Uh, and, and what happens, though, because we've been so conditioned in another model that we actually look at performance, how we perform as a, as a measure of righteousness. That is not the measure of righteousness. It's how we trust God, which is the measure of righteousness. Do we trust him with our lives? Yeah. So th- thanks for clarifying that, because I think it was a hugely important thing to clarify. So from my paraphrase in Romans chapter uh, 3, starting in verse tw- 27, I'll read a few verses for you about, from my paraphrase, because the lesson suggested we look at Romans 3. Where then is human bragging or accomplishment? It has no place, for our healing has been accomplished by God, through trust made possible by Jesus. And why is boasting not possible? Because our efforts to conform to a set of rules does not establish trust 
or remove the infection of selfishness from our hearts. Only trust in God eliminates fear and opens the heart to God, and then he uses his divine power to apply the remedy Christ achieved in order to recreate us in love to be like Christ. Therefore, we insist that a man is cleansed or set right with God only by trusting in God and opening his heart to him, and and this is different from keeping rules. Is the creator of the entire human race the God of the Jews only? Is he not God of all humanity, including Gentiles? Of course, he is the God of all humanity, and he will heal the circumcised if they trust him, and the uncircumcised will also be healed if they trust him. Do we then destroy or make useless by our trust the written code God gave to help us? Of course not. We show that the written code was very was helpful in diagnosing our sickness, revealing God's plan to heal, and leading us back to trust so we could be healed. Friday's lesson. Let's jump to Friday because there's some interesting things in Friday's lesson. Particularly a quote out of um, Patriarchs and Prophets that I thought would be beneficial to look at. In the top, let's read that, that uh, first paragraph, or, uh, first section there. It says, In their bondage, the people had a great ex- to a great extent lost the knowledge of God and the principles of the Abrahamic covenant. In delivering them from Egypt, God sought to reveal to them his power and his mercy that they might be led to love and trust him. He brought them down to the Red Sea where they, pursue, where they were pursued by the Egyptians. Escape seemed impossible that they might realize their utter helplessness and their need of divine aid. And then he wrought deliverance for them. Thus they were filled with love and gratitude uh, to God and with confidence in his power to help them. He had bound them to himself as their deliverer from temporal bondage. But there was still a greater truth to be impressed upon their minds. Living in the midst of idolatry and corruption, they had no true conception of the holiness of God, of the exceeding sinfulness in their own hearts, their utter inability in themselves to render obedience to the law of God, and their need of a Savior. All this they must be taught. The law of God spoken in awful grandeur from Sinai is the utterance of condemnation to the sinner. It it is the province of the law to condemn, but there but there is in it no power to pardon or redeem. I like it. Do you like it? Yes. Yeah, let's talk about what it means. So what is their condition the law condemns them of? The power of the law is to condemn. What's the power of the MRI machine? What's its power? To diagnose. What's the power of the pathology lab report? To diagnose. Mm-hmm. And if you have cancer and you go on the MRI, you could say, wow, I've just gotten a death sentence. Mm-mm. No. no. Remedy. Ah, uh, without remedy, you see. I've got metastatic cancer. I've got a death sentence. I've been diagnosed terminal. So the law, the power of the law is to diagnose us in our true condition. And our true condition, separate from Christ, is we are dead in our trespass and sin. We're, we're dying. We're terminal. That's its power, to diagnose. It has no power to ha- cleanse. It has no power to heal. That comes from Christ, the power to heal and cleanse. So what was the obstacle they had in getting well? Their obstacle that they had in getting well, they had lost the knowledge of God and the principles of his covenant. what I said. So they didn't know God. They didn't know their condition. They didn't know the principles of the covenant. They didn't know what life was built upon. So they were terminal, and the, ob- the obstacle to getting well is they didn't even know they were sick, and they didn't know there was a cure. Have you ever had somebody, we call this an occult malignancy. Occult in uh, medical terms means something that's hidden. that can't be seen. And so somebody has a, ter- a cancer, they don't even know they have it. Well, those are really the dangerous kind. 
because they keep growing and growing and growing. And, and it's only when it's diagnosed and brought in the open that you can do something about it. That's what the law was given, to diagnose and bring in the open the sickness of sin that was spreading in their characters and hearts. So why did God take him to the Red Sea? It says right in the context, he took him to the Red Sea for a purpose. To teach them to trust him. To teach them to trust him. They of themselves were as, as hopeless as their human situation was, the Red Sea at their back, Pharaoh's army bearing down on them from the front, there is no way in their human strength they could deliver themselves from that. That's a similar situation to our situation in sin. We are in a situation that is, we're going to die. And there's no way we can deliver ourselves. So he wanted to tell them, but I can open a way for your deliverance. I can open a way. And that's what he did for them. And then you notice it says he wanted to reveal to him to them his power. I like this. He wanted to reveal to them his power. And my question to you is, power to do what? Heal. Say that again? Heal. Heal. Exactly. And I want you to let's go, I want to, I, I go through scripture. When you think of God's power, traditionally when we when we hear preachers preach of God's power, do you primarily, typically, reflexively, automatically hear hear God's power is there to help? Or do you hear God's power is there to punish? What's our tradition? What's our reflex? What have we been taught and raised with? Destroy and punish. Punish, destroy. I'm going to suggest to you, Scripture, if you look at it, God's power is always used to help, Amen. to heal, to restore. And let's look at it. Um, the flood. Why was the flood? To keep open the channel through which this Messiah would come. Uh, God is not going to force a woman to be the bearer of his son on earth against her will. She had to be voluntary. At this point in earth's history, we have one righteous man and his family. Everybody else is on Satan's side. Nobody's else willing to work with God. If, if he can get the evil men to, to kill, kill Noah and his family or get them to rebel or just let them die from age, there'll be no righteous left on the earth. Messiah can't come. God acted to keep open the channel. That's, that's using power and love to help. It's like excising a gangrenous foot. Yes? God did, not, God did not destroy the world. He sent the ark to save anybody who would come on the ark. We were destroying the world, and we were going to destroy it again in the very near future. Our minds have much more power than we think we have. Everyone was um, evil continuously. They just did experiments in France and Japan. Yeah, I'm okay with that theory, too. I'm okay with that theory, too. I just didn't want to... Most people can't accept that theory, so I don't put it out there, okay? And it can go either way. So you can make the argument either way with whether God used his power or whether it was a consequence of withdrawal of his power. Either one, I'm good with. It can go either way. Um, what about the plagues of Egypt? Were they to help or to punish? What did they do? They repeatedly showed the impotence of the Egyptian gods. Every plague was a plague against one of the specific Egyptian deities that they worshipped. And it showed that the Egyptian deities had no power. It was designed to not only bring the... the, the um, Slaves, uh, the Hebrew slaves, to an awareness that the Egyptian gods have no power, but the Egyptians themselves. And in fact, some Egyptians left with the Hebrews and went out in the mixed multitude. And so he was reaching people, so he was using power to help, to redeem. How about um, the thundering at Sinai? Boom, big power. Was it to punish or to help? Help. To help. They were having an orgy around a golden calf, and he was trying to shock them out of the, their, their rebellious hearts to bring them back to a knowledge of him. Um, how about uh, using power to keep scorpions and snakes out of the camp? That's power to help, clearly. How about when they looked to the, to the bronze serpent on the pole, and they were healed? Power to, to heal. How about pow, uh, when he provided manna and water from the rock? 
power to help. Drought for three and a half years and then fire from Mount Carmel. Was this power to punish or power to help? They were worshiping Baal. And he wanted to, Baal was the god of thunder and lightning in the harvest. And he was going to show the people, bring them to the point, Baal is a false god. Only the creator God is their hope of salvation. He was trying to take them out of darkness to light. Power again to help. Power to raise a dead man whose body touches the bones of Elisha. Power to help or power to hurt? To punish. It was to help because they were again in rebellious and they'd forgotten what Elijah, the message of Elijah, they'd forgotten the message of Elijah. And so, um, this, this, imagine you guys are in, in rebellion, you're at war, you're, you're running back, you throw a dead body in a cave and, and that body comes running back out in about 30 seconds. Okay? You think it might get your attention? Okay, whoa, that's right, Elijah was, Elisha was in there. Maybe we should remember what Elisha taught. Maybe we should think, what, 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 who was Elisha and what was his message? Well, how about power to break Dagon into pieces? Dagon falls in front of the ark, remember? And then he breaks into pieces. Power to punish? Or, and then the hemorrhoids, of course, that they got. The, the people who, This power to punish or power to help them realize, wait, there's something wrong with the God word. Maybe some kid comes in, you know, and Dagon's there, and they're coming to pray to Dagon that morning, and, and he's broken with his head broken, his hands broken right before the ark, said, now, wait a minute. We're going to pick this thing up. We're going to glue him back together. We're going to pray to him? Huh? Maybe somebody's going to figure out that Dagon isn't really right. The Philistines got the, uh, got the message. Yeah. Um, how about... How about Sodom and Gomorrah? How about Sodom and Gomorrah? Power to punish, power to help. Where was Sodom and Gomorrah located? Who would, who, if Sodom and Gomorrah stayed, who would have been the neighbors? Children of Israel. Children of Israel. And did the children of Israel, without Sodom and Gomorrah and the other five cities, did they struggle in their ability to stay away from all the hedonistic practices and, and so forth? So what would have happened maybe, and we don't know because we don't, we don't have the history of what would have happened, but we have to speculate a little bit, but with the added influence of Sodom and Gomorrah and the five cities, can we see the potential further corruption of Israel and the loss of the channel for the Messiah? Because, remember, Satan's strategies are to prevent Messiah from coming. So he wants to destroy all mankind or hold them like he did before the flood. He wants to destroy Israel once Israel is then the avenue through which Messiah is announced to come. And so he's trying to stop any possible... If he could have killed all the Israelites, all the children of Abraham, he would have done it. He didn't want any of them. So I, I think God acted, knowing the future, how things are going to unfold to excise a cancer on planet earth. And the, and and the reason and the reason that cancer was excised you can read in Ezekiel. It's not because of uh, sodomy. Will you read it for us please? Ezekiel 16:49. I have an answer. Go ahead. Behold this was the iniquity of my sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. So, it wasn't primarily a sexual problem. It was a hard-hearted problem, a complete lack of love and compassion. Remember the Eastern mindset. The Eastern mindset is one of hospitality. Somebody comes to visit, you are to be hospitable to them and show them love and grace and compassion. Now, do you really think that if the angels that came to visit Sodom, came to visit Lot, would have come in the form of women, and the men turned out and demanded to have sex with these women, God would have said, well done, you heterosexual men, well done. This is not about homosexuality. This is about abuse of people, complete lack of love, complete willing to extort, exploit, and harm another person for your own gratification. That's where their hardness of heart was their sin. 
So what about the power to stop the fire from consuming three worthies and the lions from eating Daniel? Another exercise of power. Again, no, designed to help. Power demonstrated in Jesus and all his miracles. Power demonstrated by the apostles. If you go down the history of God's exercise of power, it's not to punish. God's exercise of power is always to heal and to restore. Like a surgeon's scalpel. Sometimes a surgeon may amputate a leg. But is he amputating the leg to punish or to save because it's so cancerous or necrotic? When you see God, and the other element you always have to remember when you see God using his power to put people to rest in the grave, is that that's always first death. They're, they're coming. There's a resurrection coming for those same people. He didn't terminate their existence. They still exist. They're just in a state of suspended animation for the moment. And they're going to exist and live and have free thought and free choice again. And we have to remember that. Sometimes we, we forget that. The last plagues in Revelation chapter, was it 17 or 18? The, 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 the angels coming with the vials. In, in, 16, thank you. Revelation 16. Well, you have to connect that to Revelation 7 1 first, 7 1 through 3, when it says the angel came from the east, sound the four angels holding back the four winds of strife. The angels who had been given power to harm the land and the earth and the sea, uh, hold, hold, hold until the people of God are sealed in their forehead. Now, notice how these angels are described. They're described as actively doing something. What are they doing? They're holding the four winds of strife, but they've been given power to do something. And their power is to harm the, the land and the, and the sea. Uh, now, so think this through. They're, they're actively holding something, but their power is to harm something. Well, how are they going to harm it? By letting go. And so the, the plagues are a process of God slowly letting go of his restraint of satanic forces. And Ellen White ex- says it explicitly. She says, I was shown that the... Um, that the, um, she was the plagues, the, um, judgments, I think the judgments of God, yeah. I was shown that the judgments of God do not come out from him, directly from him, but in this way. Those who persist in rebellion and reject God's, uh, God's calls for repentance and mercy, so forth and so on, he no longer sends his agencies to provide protection over them. And Satan has more power on earth to, to harm the earth and the land and the sea, and destruction occurs across the globe, and we'll see more manifest, manifestations of his destructive force. So she explicitly says that those plagues come out from him um, by a, a slow, gradual withdrawal of his protecting hand from those who insist on going uh, rebellious from him. And I wrote a blog, went up yesterday, go to the website, um, that somebody email, uh, emailed in saying, hey, I love this picture of God, but I get cornered by people who bring up God's wrath in the Bible. Um, can you give me some answers on how to handle God's wrath? And this blog actually describes through scripture these tests, these, these places where God is speaking in a loud, angry way, but then you actually look at what happened and you see the progression that God's wrath is God's, God's letting go or giving up or no longer restraining the powers of evil, giving people the freedom to do as they wish. And ultimately, freedom from God is death. death. Pain, suffering, and death. That's what happens. So we didn't get to the rest of the lesson. Gracious Father, we thank you so much that you have given us all these lessons to show us the difference between a kingdom of love, a kingdom of selflessness, a kingdom of giving, that you so loved the world you gave your only begotten son, versus this thing of the world where we're so interested in ourselves that we'll, we'll hurt other people to protect ourselves. We don't want to be part of that thing anymore, Lord. We want to be part of your kingdom. We open our hearts. We trust you because you've proven that you are completely trustworthy. We ask that your spirit will come. Take what Christ has achieved. Reproduce in us a character like yours that we love you and we love others and that we can come into the unity of love and be a light 
of your kingdom in this world so that the world will see your true nature and character and that you can come soon. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen.